Today is Wednesday, May the 24th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, that's L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Meta was hit with a record $1.3 billion fine by its lead European Union privacy regulator over its handling of user information and given five months to stop transferring users' data to the United States. The fine, imposed by Ireland's Data Protection Commissioner, that's the DPC, came after Meta continued to transfer data beyond a 2020 EU court ruling that invalidated an EU-US data transfer pact. It tops the previous record EU privacy fine of 746 million euros handed by Luxembourg to Amazon.com, Inc. in 2021. The battle over where Meta's Facebook stores its data began a decade ago after Austrian privacy campaigner Max Schrems brought a legal challenge over the risk of U.S. snooping in light of disclosures by former U.S. National Security Agency contractor Edward Snowden. Meta said in a statement that it will appeal the ruling, including the unjustified and unnecessary fine that sets a dangerous precedent for countless other companies. It will also seek a stay of the suspension orders through the courts. The social media giant reiterated that it expected a new pact facilitating the safe transfer of EU citizens' personal data to the United States would be fully implemented before it has to suspend transfers. That would mean its previous warning that a stoppage could force it to suspend Facebook services in Europe would not come to pass. Without the ability to transfer data across borders, the Internet risk being carved up into national and regional silos, Meta said. The DPC said in March that EU and U.S. officials hoped that the new data protection framework, agreed by Brussels and Washington in March of 2022, may be ready by July. Europe's top court, the European Court of Justice, threw out the two previous pacts over concerns about U.S. surveillance. Schwems, the Austrian privacy campaigner, said Meta's plans to rely on the New Deal for transfers going forward was unlikely to be a permanent fix. In my opinion, the New Deal has maybe a 10% chance of not being killed by the CJEU, which is the European Union Court of Justice, unless U.S. surveillance laws gets fixed. Meta will likely to have to keep EU data in the EU, he said in a statement. The Irish watchdog which is the lead EU regulator for many of the world's top technology companies because of the location of their European headquarters in Ireland, has said the suspension order could create a precedent for other firms. It has now fined Meta a total of 2.5 billion euros for breaches under the bloc's General Data Protection Regulation 
which is the GDPR introduced in 2018. The DPC said that it did not initially propose adding a fine to the suspension order, but that four other EU supervising authorities disagreed and the record fine was included after ruling by the European Data Protection Board. The Irish regulator has fined Meta more than any other tech firm and has 10 other inquiries open into the social media group's platforms. Big Tech hires low-paid foreign workers after the U.S. layoff. Some of the biggest companies in tech, including Google, Meta, Amazon, Microsoft, and Salesforce, have hired foreign workers just weeks after reducing headcount by thousands of employees, according to a report. Google, which laid off some 12,000 employees earlier this year, filed applications for low-paid foreign workers to come to the United States and assume high specialized tech roles within the company, according to investigative journalist Lee Fang. The Alphabet-owned search engine submitted applications for dozens of foreign workers who were seeking to fill roles including software engineers, analytical consultants, user experience researchers, and others, Fang wrote in his Substack newsletter. The Google-owned self-driving outfit Waymo also received government approval for H-1B visa applications for engineering jobs, according to Fang. The newly employed workers from overseas will begin working at the company as soon as August the 17th. Other firms, including Meta, Amazon, Zoom, Salesforce, Microsoft, and Planetair, have also filed for more H-1B applications, according to Fang. The Post has sought comment from all of those companies, but they have not replied. H-1B visas, which are used by software engineers and others in the tech industry, have been a lightning rod in the immigration debate, with critics saying they are used to undercut U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents. They are issued for three years and can be extended another three years. Microsoft and other tech companies have hired lobbyists in an effort to expand the number of HB visa recipients. Fang cited a 2017 study by the National Bureau of Economic Research that found that wages for U.S. computer scientists would have been 2.6% to 5.1% higher, while employment in computer science for U.S. workers would have been 6.1% to 10.8% higher in 2001 in the absence of immigration. This number of applications for visas used in the technology industry soared for a second straight year, raising serious concerns that some are manipulating the system to gain an unfair advantage authorities said last month. According to Fang, tech firms have hired lobbyists to pressure lawmakers and the administration to expand the number of H-1B visas that are issued. Tech companies, including Meta, have sought to hire more low-wage foreign workers after laying off thousands, according to a report. There were 780,884 applications for H-1B visas in this year's computer-generated lottery, up 61% from 483,927 last year. U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service said in a message to stakeholders. Last year, Hall was up 57% from 308,613 applications a year before. Each year, up to 85,000 people are selected for H-1B visas. The website layoffs.fyi 
which keeps a running tally of the total number of workers who have lost their jobs this year, reported more than 168,000 tech layoffs. By the way, according to the Department of Labor, employers must take good faith steps to recruit U.S. workers for any job which they seek H-1B workers. It's hard to believe that all those people we laid off, none of them qualified to be rehired, and they have to go offshore to hire another 85,000 people? We have laws, but the laws are only good if they are enforced. Google will soon purge inactive accounts. The tech giant says old, disused accounts pose a security threat. From the Google Cloud to the great big garbage bin in the sky, Google says use it or lose it. The tech giant now plans to delete old inactive accounts. Google is putting inactive users on notice. The tech giant says it will soon start deleting accounts that have gone two years or longer without a login or other demonstration of engagement. Stored content on Gmail, Workspace, YouTube, and Photos will all be on the chopping block along with the associated Google accounts themselves under the new policy as outlined in a company blog posted this past week. Though it can be easy to feel that the internet is forever, especially when something you'd rather not have posted make it online, it's really not. The internet has proven time and time again to be a rather ephemeral archive. Websites go offline, repositories of content self-immobilate, servers get wiped, and Google can put an expiration date on whatever it wants. So consider this is your regular reminder to back up all your stuff, not just on the cloud. Videos, important emails, critical text documents, all of it. If you don't want your digital life disappearing, you better be storing it away for safekeeping. Google account deletions will start in December 2023 with a phased approach. The first to go will be accounts that were created and never used again. From there, the purge will expand to include any personal, not business or institutional account that's gone unused for two plus years. The company says it will send multiple notifications over the months leading up to deletion prior to taking action and these notices should go to both the account itself and any associated recovery email. We are going to roll this out slowly and carefully with plenty of notice, Google wrote. To prevent an account from being deemed inactive, users have lots of options. You can sign into it on any device and read or send an email, use Google Drive, watch a YouTube video, download an app from the Play Store, use Google Search, or access a third-party service through your Google account. Existing subscriptions accessed through a Google account will also count as activity, according to the press statement. Beyond logging into all your accounts and messing around, Google also recommends that users double-check their settings and ensure there are verified recovery emails in place. Separately, Google Photos has already had an auto-deletion policy in place since December 2020. To make sure that photos and videos stored there stick around, users should specifically log into their Photos account regularly. Activity in other areas of a Google account won't necessarily preserve pictures. Still though, scrapping whole accounts is a big change. 
It's unclear if Google will allow deleted logins and email addresses to be recycled into new accounts. Google says it is undertaking the account cleanout to beef up user security. Because they often lack two-factor authentication and use old passwords, unattended accounts are often vulnerable to attacks like hijacking, phishing, and other threats. The company noted in its announcements, Once an account is compromised, it can be used for anything from identity theft to a vector for unwanted to even malicious content like spam. So instead of leaving abandoned accounts open for zombification, Google is opting for the digital garbage disposal. That said, as much as Google's security concerns are probably legit, the company is also likely set to benefit from all that freed up service space. Storing stuff isn't free. Holding on to hordes of inactive accounts and all that accompanying data undoubtedly takes up a significant chunk of Google's cloud capacity. Amid an industry-wide tech downturn, Alphabet, that's Google's parent company, announced its largest ever layoffs earlier this year with plans to cut 12,000 employees. Though the company's cloud sector recently had its first profitable quarter in three years, Google is still likely looking for ways to cut costs to appease and impress, of course, the investors. Fake scientific papers are alarmingly common, but new tools show promise in tackling the growing symptom of academia's publish-or-perish culture. When neuropsychologist Bernhard Sabo put his new fake paper detector to work, he was shocked by what it found. After screening some 5,000 papers, he estimated up to 34% of neuroscience papers published in 2020 were likely made up or plagiarized. In medicine, the figure was 24%. Both numbers, which he and colleagues reported in a May 8th post, are well above levels they calculated for 2010 and far larger than the 2% baseline estimated in a 2022 publisher's group report. His findings underscore what was widely suspected. Journals are awash in rising tide of scientific manuscripts from paper mills, which are secretive businesses that allow researchers to pad their publication records by paying for fake papers or undeserved authorship. Sable's tool relies on just two indicators, authors who use private non-institutional email addresses and those who list an affiliation with a hospital. It isn't a perfect solution because of a high false positive rate. Other developers of fake paper detectors who often reveal little about how their tools work, contend with similar issues. The recent advent of artificial intelligence tools such as ChatGPT has amplified the concern of bogus manuscripts. Sable's tool correctly flagged nearly 90% of fraudulent or retracted papers in a test sample. However, it marked up to 44% of genuine papers as fake, so results still need to be confirmed by skilled reviewers. Scrutinizing suspect papers can be time-consuming. Newly updated guidelines for journals issued in April may help ease the workload. Its previous guidelines encouraged journals to ask authors of each suspicious paper for more information, which can just trigger a lengthy back and forth. The publish or perish pressure that institutions put on scientists is also an obstacle. Publishers should also welcome help from outsiders 
to improve the technology supporting paper mill detectors, although this will require transparency about how they work. When tools are developed behind closed doors, no one can criticize or investigate how they perform. Flagging journals can quickly deter additional fraudulent submissions. Some observers worry paper mill will merely migrate to lower impact journals with fewer resources to detect them. With increasing frequency, we're told to trust the science and follow the science. Yet, what science are we supposed to follow? Exactly who's an expert and who's not and who decides which is which? What does it mean to trust the science? Demolishing along the way the notion that science can ever be settled and beyond question. This is important because scientific deception will continue to be used. Fake scientific papers threaten to corrupt the scientific literature, misleading readers and potentially distorting systemic reviews. Cord Cutting 2.0 and New Internet Options Cord Cutting 2.0 is here and it's not good for Comcast, Spectrum, AT&T and the other ISPs. When people talk about cord cutting, they often talk about the idea of canceling cable TV and streaming content online. Now that more Americans are cord cutters than there are Americans who pay for cable TV, we are moving into cord cutting 2.0. Now Americans have decided to cut the cord fully on their old cable TV company. Now they want to cut the internet and move away from cable TV. Increasingly, that is becoming possible thanks to new internet options, including fiber, 5G home internet, satellite internet, wireless internet, and more. Recently, T-Mobile announced it had added 523,000 home internet customers in the first quarter of 2023. That numbers more new home internet customers than AT&T, Comcast, Charter, and Verizon added in the fourth quarter of 2022 combined, according to T-Mobile. This comes as Americans are being drawn to cheaper new options, including T-Mobile's $50 a month home internet service. Verizon offers a 5G internet service that starts as low as $25 a month. Now, AT&T has also announced a wireless 5G called AT&T Internet Air to compete with T-Mobile and Verizon's 5G service. AT&T offering seems to focus on markets where its fiber networks have not yet reached. This is a very different strategy from T-Mobile and Verizon. A host of other smaller internet providers have recently started to pop up, offering high-speed internet options in a growing number of areas. In the past, most Americans had maybe two internet options where they lived. Increasingly, Americans now have more options. These new options are giving cord cutters the ability to cut the cord fully on their old cable TV company by ditching their internet for a new provider. This raises real questions about how cable companies will respond if both their TV and internet revenue is being challenged by new competitors. AT&T takes first step towards offering smartphone satellite service. AT&T files to lease Spectrum to AST Space Mobile, the company behind a huge prototype communication satellite 
capable of beaming data to smartphones on the ground. A new deal with AST Space Mobile means AT&T is one step closer towards offering satellite-based internet through its customers' smartphones. As Space News reports, AT&T will lease radio spectrum to AST Space Mobile so it can beam satellite-based internet to customers without any modifications to their cell phones. AST made headlines last year for launching a huge prototype satellite built with the largest communications array in history. The so-called Blue Walker 3 test satellite is essentially designed to act as a cell tower in space with the goal of delivering 4G and 5G speeds to consumers on Earth. Last month, AST made its first ever voice call from Texas to Japan through the Blue Walker 3 satellite, which tapped the same radio frequencies as AT&T's cell network. The 850 megahertz spectrum using an unmodified Samsung Galaxy S22. Pending FCC approval, AT&T now wants to lease certain 850 megahertz and 700 megahertz spectrum to AST, according to a regulatory filing. The aim is to provide supplemental coverage through the satellite broadband, including for emergency purposes such as during a disaster. The same satellite broadband also promises to help AT&T connect consumers in unserved and underserved areas without causing interference with other cellular networks. Because AST's technology can focus satellite coverage in discrete portions of licensed areas, it does not need a nationwide swath of terrestrial mobile spectrum that a mobile network operator licensee has left fallow, the carrier added. The AM radio is a critical part of the National Emergency Broadcast System and one of the few reliable communication signals for rural America. The AM for Every Vehicle Act by Senators Ted Cruz, who's a Republican from Texas, and Ed Markey, who is a senator from Massachusetts, are the sponsors for this. AM radio in vehicles is both a critical part of the National Emergency Broadcast System, but it is also one of the few reliable communication tools available to reach rural America. Due to AM radio's unique suitability for transmission over long distances and its usage for news and talk formats, AM's presence in vehicles is essential today as it was 40 years ago. AM radio connects our nation, and Senators Ted Cruz and Ed Markey are right to recognize through their joint introduction in the Senate of the AM for Every Vehicle Act that auto manufacturers have a responsibility to include AM in the auto fleets of the future. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about computers, the workplace, how they all interrelate, and so much more. Frequently... On this uh, topic, I uh, basically in this few minutes we have with each other each week, I talk about things from a very high level. And it, this is not going to be any different. It's up to you to take the bits and pieces that I give you and to apply those into the smaller parts of your life. 
This echoes in this exact topic we're going to be talking about today. A matter of, the, there's a phrase out there, data is king. All right, you've probably heard this, and it seems like everywhere we turn to these days, data is being collected, it's being analyzed, and it's being used to make decisions. Whether it's it's on our smartphone, it's it's the products we buy. We're we're talking about Facebook and Google, and they're all leveraging data. Data is at the center of it all. You go, you swipe your your club card at the local grocery store. They are tracking all kinds of data there, and we've got this going on in the workplace. And we uh, we have people who are talking about how can we leverage data to get ahead of the the competitor. And we're talking about all of these different things in the workplace and everywhere else. Because it all involves data. And data is this big, huge, overreaching thing that just refers to it's all of the bits and pieces of minutia, the collection of facts or figures that can be analyzed and used to make decisions. Whether we're talking about in our personal lives, our work lives, in the company, in the grocery store, whatever it is, data. It can come from so many different sources. It can be a matter of how much we've sold. It's uh, all of all of those sales reports. It can be in the matter of customer feedback. What does a customer say? What do we as a customer say? It can be in the form of employee performance metrics. It can be in the form of tracking uh, anything. If there are numbers that we're putting down to paper, those numbers can be analyzed. And as we analyze them, we can gain insights into what's working and what's not working. What really needs to be improved and what can be left alone to watch. And how are we going to watch it? By monitoring the metrics, the data, by monitoring what's going on. So what can we do? Let's let's just go through and let's go through the basic, simple process of using data. First, we want to identify areas for improvement. This is this is very crucial. If you're a salesperson and you notice your sales numbers are lower than your colleagues, you can utilize data to identify what's causing that. Are there certain products that you're not selling as well as your colleagues? Are there certain customers that you're not reaching out to? Are there certain things that you can find in the data that say, hey, you're not performing well in this area? You may, I mean, we look at it, we go, okay, I just have lower numbers. No. Why do you have lower numbers? What are the areas that you can take action and you can address and you can bring yourself higher in your goals there? As a matter of fact, you need to be setting goals. You need to be tracking progress. If you don't, if you don't measure it, you can't set goals. And if you can't set goals, then you can't go through and improve things. So you have to track all of this. And it, it, it's all intertwined. For, for example, if you want to increase your productivity, you need to monitor the data that says how much you're getting done every day. You set the goal. You track that. And you can see whether you're on track or you need to make adjustments. You can see what did you accomplish, what did you not accomplish. Why didn't you accomplish this? Why were you able to accomplish that? You need to use data. 
to drive all of this. Data will allow you to make an informed decision. And it's, it's wherever you're at. It, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're an employee or a manager or the, uh, the CEO of a company. Let, let's, let's, let's put it this way. If you're a manager and you're trying to decide whether to invest in a new product line, you are going to use sales data to help you make that decision. You're going to analyze it and you're going to see if this new product line is going to be successful or not. How much profit there's going to be. How much cost there's going to be to put that into place. When is your return on investment? And these all combined are going to make the company better. Lastly, I want to talk about you utilizing data to collaborate with others. For example, let's say you're working on a team project. You can use data to share information and insights with your colleagues. By sharing data back and forth, you can work as a team to identify areas for improvement, to make decisions based on objective information rather than just opinions. I'm struggling with that in, in, uh, in something I'm doing right now where I have opinions, but I need to look at the data to find out objectively if I'm right in my opinions. Now, just remember, data isn't everything. There are sometimes intangible factors that aren't going to be captured by that data. Yes, data is king, but it's not the whole kingdom. It's, it's just like in a chess game. Data is a powerful piece on the board. It's not the only one. So you learn to use data wisely and in conjunction with your own instincts and abilities to achieve your goals and to reach new successes. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Automated hiring systems, algorithmic screening tools on the surface seem like an appealing replacement for biased human evaluations. However, experts have started realizing that these tools reproduce and sometimes magnify human biases found in the data sets based on which these tools are designed. Algorithms do not question the human decisions underlying a data set. They attempt to replicate past decisions, and this can lead them to replicate all the human biases that they were intended to remove in the first place. Algorithms can exasperate employment discrimination. These tools range in complexity from merely to parse resumes to rank them to systems that greenlight candidates and reject applicants deemed unfit. Increasingly, working Americans are obligated to use them if they want to get hired. It's time for the U.S. Federal Trade Commission to regulate them. Ironically, many of these systems are marketed as being bias-free or guaranteed to reduce the probability of discriminatory hiring. But because they're so loosely regulated, such systems have been shown to deny equal employment opportunity on the basis of protected categories such as race, age, sex, and disability. In December of last year, for example, a female truckers' union sued Meta alleging that Facebook selectively shows job advertisements based on users' gender and age, with older workers far less likely to see ads 
and women far less likely to see ads with blue-collar positions, especially in industries that historically exclude women. This is deceptive. Even more, it is unfair to job applicants and employers alike. Employers purchase automated hiring systems to reduce their liability for employment discrimination, and the vendors of those systems are legally obligated to substantiate their claims of fairness. The law puts automated hiring systems under the FTC's purview, but the agency has yet to release specific guidelines on how these systems ought to advertise their wares. It should start by requiring auditing to ensure that automated hiring platforms are fulfilling the promises they make to employers. The vendors of these platforms should be obligated to provide clear records of audits demonstrating that their systems reduce bias in employment decision-making as advertised. These audits should be able to show that designers followed equal Employment Opportunity Commission guidelines when creating the platforms. Also, in collaboration with the EEOC, the FTC could establish the fair automated hiring mark, which would be used to certify that automated hiring systems have passed a rigorous auditing process. The mark would be a useful signal of quality to consumers, both applicants and employers. The FTC should also allow job applicants who are consumers of AI-enabled online application systems to sue under the Federal Credit Report Act, that's the FCRA. Previously, the FCRA was thought to only apply to the big three credit agencies, but a close reading shows that this law can apply whenever a report has been created for any economic decision. By this definition, applicant profiles created by online automated hiring platforms are consumer reports, which means that the entities that generate them, such as online hiring platforms, would be considered credit reporting agencies. Under the FCRA, anyone that is a subject of one of these reports can petition the agency that made it to see the results and demand corrections or amendments. Most consumers do not know they have these rights. The FTC should launch an education program to inform applicants about these rights so they can make use of them. Apple restricts employees from using ChatGPT over fear of data leaks. Apple is the latest company to ban employees from using generative AI tools like ChatGPT. OpenAI's chatbot stores users' conversation to train the company's AI systems. ChatGPT launched on iOS this week. Apple has restricted employees from using AI tools like OpenAI's ChatGPT over fears confidential information enter into these systems will be leaked or collected. According to a report from the Wall Street Journal, Apple employees have also been warned against using GitHub's AI programming assistant co-pilot. Bloomberg reporter Mark Gurman tweeted that ChatGPT had been on Apple's list of restricted software for months. Apple has good reason to be wary. By default, OpenAI stores all interactions between users and ChatGPT. These conversations are collected to train OpenAI systems and can be inspected by moderators for breaking the company's terms and services. In April, 
OpenAI launched a feature that lets users turn off chat history coincidentally not long after various EU nations began investigating the tool for potential privacy violations. But even with this setting enabled, OpenAI still retains the conversations for 30 days with the option to review them for abuse before deleting them permanently. Given the utility of ChatGPT for tasks like improving code and brainstorming ideas, Apple may be rightly worried its employees will enter information on confidential projects into the system. This information might then be seen by one of OpenAI's moderators. Research shows it's also possible to extract training data from some language models using its chat interface, though there's no evidence that ChatGPT itself is vulnerable to such attacks. Apple is far from the only company instituting such a ban. Others include J.P. Morgan, Verizon, and Amazon. Apple's ban, though, is notable given OpenAI's launch an iOS app for ChatGPT this week. The app is free to use, supports voice input, and is available in the United States. OpenAI says it will be launching the app in other countries soon, along with an Android version. Study Exploring the Security Risk of ChatGPT ChatGPT, OpenAI's most popular endeavor thus far, has kick-started an artificial intelligence revolution since its launch in late 2022. The AI chatbot has been dominating headlines and has preoccupied the minds of those running Twitter, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Meta, and other tech experts, and more recently, music labels. The AI language model became the fastest growing app of all time, even surpassing TikTok. For all the good things you can do with OpenAI's new chatbot, you also need to be aware of the ways it can be used by people with malicious intent. Concerns about the risk of generative AI reach an all-time high. OpenAI CEO Sam Altman even testified at a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing to address risk and the future of AI. A study published on May the 13th of this year by ARXIV.org identified six different security risks involving the use of ChatGPT. ARXIV is an archive of research papers in physics, mathematics, computer science, quantitative biology, quantitative finance, and statistics. These risks include the potential for bad actors to use ChatGPT for fraudulent services generation, harmful information gathering, private data disclosure, malicious text generation, malicious code generation, and offensive content production. Each risk entails what you should look out for according to the study. In information gathering, a person acting with malicious intent can gather information from ChatGPT that they can later use for harm. Since the chatbot has been trained on copious amounts of data, it knows a lot of information that could be weaponized if put into the wrong hands. In the study, ChatGPT is prompted to divulge what IT system a specific bank uses. The chatbot, using publicly available information, rounds up different IT systems that the bank in question uses. 
This is just an example of a malicious actor using ChatGPT to find information that could enable them to cause harm. This could be used to aid in the first step of a cyber attack when the attacker is gathering information about the target to find where and how to attack the most effectively, said the study. Then there's malicious text. One of ChatGPT's most beloved features is its ability to generate text that can be used to compose essays, emails, songs, and more. However, this writing ability can be used to create harmful text as well. Examples of harmful text generation could include the generating of phishing campaigns, disinformation such as fake news articles, spam, and even impersonation, as delineated by the study. To test this risk, the authors in the study used ChatGPT to create a phishing campaign, which let employees know about a fake salary increase with instructions to open and attach Excel sheet that contained malware. As expected, ChatGPT produced a plausible and believable email. Then you have malicious code generation. Similarly to ChatGPT's amazing writing abilities, the chatbot's impressive coding abilities have become a handy tool for many. However, the chatbot's ability to generate code could also be used for harm. ChatGPT code can be used to produce quick code, allowing attackers to deploy threats quicker, even with limited coding knowledge. In addition, ChatGPT could be used to produce obfuscated code, making it more difficult for security analysts to detect malicious activities and avoid antivirus software, according to the study. In this example, the chatbot refuses to generate malicious code, but it does agree to generate code that could test for a log4j vulnerability in a system. Then you have producing unethical content. ChatGPT has guardrails in place to prevent the spread of offensive and unethical content. However, if a user is determined enough, there are ways to get ChatGPT to say things that are hurtful and unethical. For example, the authors in the study were able to bypass the safeguards by placing ChatGPT in a developer mode. There, the chatbot said some negative things about a specific racial group. Then there's fraudulent services. ChatGPT can be used to assist in the creation of new applications, services, websites, and more. This can be a very positive tool when harnessed for positive outcomes, such as creating your own business or bringing your dream idea to life. However, it can also mean that it is easier than ever to create fraudulent apps and services. ChatGPT can be exploited by malicious actors to develop programs and platforms that mimic others and provide free access as a means of attracting unsuspecting users. These actors can also use Chatbot to create applications meant to harvest sensitive information or install malware on users' devices. And finally, there's private data disclosure. ChatGPT has guardrails in place to prevent the sharing of people's personal information and data. However, the risk of chatbot inadvertently sharing phone numbers, emails, and other personal details remain a concern, according to the study. The ChatGPT March 20 outage, which allows some users to see titles from another user's chat history, is a real-world example of the concerns mentioned. Attackers can also try to extract some portions of the training data 
using membership inference attacks, according to the study. Another risk with private data disclosure is that ChatGPT can share information about the private lives of public persons, including speculative or harmful content, which could harm the person's reputation. So, if you plan on using ChatGPT for any purpose, be aware that there are security risks in its use. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. <laughs> Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, you know, we talked about the cars last week and you told me you had more car items, more. Uh, well, yeah, well yeah, I mean, it was more are, of garage last week, I guess. But yeah, go well, on. some of these are more about drivers than the cars. I want to start off grid and they're the fairly startup kind of company. Yeah. Uh, sent the off-grid fold Faraday bag key pouch car hacking defense. Now, let me explain th- th- this. That's a serious mouthful there. <laughs> All right, hold on. Let me see if I got this right. The off-grid fold Faraday bag key pouch... Uh, is a car hacking defense. The same Okay, okay, car hacking. Okay, All right. All right, who are skimming credit card data by walking near you and... Sure, yeah, it yeah, right. yeah. Well... That's an action that costs consumers and cardholders buckets of money. The reason for RFID wallets coming into the market. And and those guys are at it again, the skimmers. Only this time, they're out to skim your car's key fob. Yes, yes. So this company, it's Remote Designs Company, sent us their clever new off-grid fold Faraday bag key pouch, which is RFID kind of blocking at the frequency that your key fob is using. So when you're not driving and when the car has to see the thing yeah, radiophonically, yeah. if you will. Uh, <laughs> radiophonic. <laughs> <laughs> Is it a Victrola? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> uh, well, it, it's... It, it does it. it. It takes your key fob off grid long enough that their skimmer isn't going to see it. It, it turns invisible. Uh, the bag has metal in the fabric, and mm-hmm, uh, that's mm-hmm. what makes it work. So unless you're driving, keep your key in the pouch. Your car will still be there for you to drive no matter how many key fob skimmers you passed on the sidewalk. Okay. So uh, and, this, and this would be good for like at, uh, at home? And yeah. also the office, because uh, because of course at home, sometimes your your key fob. Some of these key fobs are, are you know, there's enough distance on them depending on where your keys are, so somebody can come along and just <laughs> get in your car. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, I get this, it. The pouch is about twenty four bucks at Amazon. Oh, okay. Now, nice. Now while you're driving, yeah, you might find that you're on a bumpy road just in your driveway. Oh, <laughs> just in the driveway. Okay, so we're not even talking about the city or the county or the state or at this point, the Department of Transportation. Uh, you're talking. Uh, okay, so I've got, I've got, I've got. Uh, yes, a got couple of cracks in, in, in the concrete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that that's not a pejorative. He's he's a clever fellow, really. He doesn't have. <laughs> <laughs> but if you have cracks. In the concrete on your driveway or, or on the walk or on the basement floor, mm-hmm. DAP has concrete crack filler. And this is a new thing, and it is so cool and so easy. It's a do-it-yourself fix that uses a bottle with a tapered pour spout 
mm-hmm. with a dry powder inside. You put the dry powder in the crack. You use something, a piece of cardboard if you want, to smooth it out at the top. And then you mist it with water and give it about four hours. After four hours, you can put weight on it. It's rain ready in 24 hours. Okay. All right. The powder is a dry polymer. There's zero shrinkage, no fading, no peeling, no shrinking. So so it's high tech stuff then? Yeah. Okay. All right. And uh, this DAP water activated concrete crack filler is at Lowe's for about 11 bucks. Nice. Okay. So how much, how much, uh, how much does it fill? Well, we're talking about powder. How, how wide is your crack? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. That's more than an inch. Or, yeah, uh, yeah. Heck, if, if, if a crack is more than half an inch. Yeah. I might suggest trying something else. But okay. if you're catching it early on, this it, it, it gaps it. it. It's just done. Okay. All right. And, and speaking of driving. Yeah. One of the hardest things to do when you're driving is to have a tub full of hot water and lather all over your face so you can shave with a blade. Oh, back to the days of the commute. I remembered. Okay, so I, I did that with a, you know, with a, so a razor. So, stubble, what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I got in the Andis, A-N-D-I-S, Inform Shaver. Oh, nice. Here's nice. a quick look. It, it's dual titanium foils that move independently of each other to follow skin contours. It cuts it up to 10,000 strokes per minute. That's mm-hmm. 166 per second, roughly two to three octaves higher than AC hum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Plug directly into its AC adapter, or that's also how you charge its lithium-ion battery for about an hour and a half of shaving per charge. Its foils, the, the metal screens, are hypoallergenic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can wash them in your sink. Shaving with the standard foil didn't leave any redness on my face, but it comes with a second foil for sensitive skin. Razor itself is lightweight, has a slender body, rubbery grips, handles pretty well, and here's the bottom line. If you're a perfectionist, your fingers may feel the spots where blade shaving leaves less to feel, a little less bristle. For everybody else, it gives a pretty good shave. What I call shaving for optics. Nobody will see that your face isn't quite as smooth as a newborn's go-away part. Yes, yes. (laughs) It's interesting you bring up Andis because I know this company. They've been around for a while. I mean, they're they're they are they're barbershop quality stuff. This is this is this is not your typical brand name that you see around. It's not the retail shelf kind of thing. No. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there we go. Uh, And Andis and DAP and Off Grid. There's all kinds of just stuff for for the driver. Hey, if, 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 if you're driving, what's driving you? Anyways, that's the voice of Marty Winston. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty. Computer service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Tri-State region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Tech Ed Connect, Blockchain and Healthcare, presentation on Thursday, June 1st at 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is wpcug.org. Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey has the meeting on Friday, June 2nd. Meeting time is 8 p.m. 
online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, June the 8th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, June 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, June the 13th, meeting time 7 p.m. at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, call 347-278-7320. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m., on PRN, live streaming on the internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do your regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy. Until we meet again, same time, same station next week.